Welcome to another episode of the Gay Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and our special guest today is Frank Garcia, who publishes Happening Magazine. We're going to talk about some bars from Orlando and about his new magazine project. So welcome to the show, Frank. Hi. How Thank are you? Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I'm always interested to hear other people's stories about the gay bars from their past mm-hmm. and the gay, the gay bars that kind of shaped their personality and in some cases even led them into business decisions. So thank you. Oh, no, it's absolutely my pleasure. And trust me, I've got some stories. I am sure you do. So <laughs> we're going to start off. You're based in Central Florida and we're going to Actually, start I'm off. Not. Excuse me? Actually, I'm not. I live in Wilton Manors. Oh, another Wilton Manners person. <laughs> How cool. So I know a, a lot of your history in the bar scene and the, and the gay publishing scene uh, started out in Orlando. And one of the bars that I want to talk about with you is perhaps one of the most legendary facilities that ever graced Florida's gay community. Uh, and that was Parliament House. Absolutely. Uh, Parliament House, for those who don't know, Uh, started out as a small chain of hotels in the 1960s, early 60s. That was kind of like, I guess, a Holiday Inn concept or something. It was an inexpensive, family-oriented hotel chain. And I think they ultimately had seven or eight locations around the country. But in the early 1970s, that area became well-known for um, prostitutes and drug activity and unsavory things and became um, a privately owned club, a privately owned facility. Um, And that's when it became known as Parliament House, the gay resort. So why don't you tell us what you know about the background of Parliament House? When did you first become familiar with it? Well, I think growing up in Miami, you always heard legends about the Parliament House, at least while I was growing up in the 80s in Miami. And uh, it was kind of like Mecca for gay people, at least in Florida. It was like, uh, eventually you will get to the Parliament House and when you do, angels will sing. Uh, And um, that was actually my experience. (laughs) Um, I um, I was not disappointed by the Parliament House the first time that I went there. Um, it's exactly everything that you, that it is legendary and infamous for, or was. And uh, when I first got there, it was um, a gay wonderland, Disney wonderful world uh, filled with so many talented people. And, um, and you know what? There was always this air of you're welcomed. Welcome home. You finally made it. You found us. We're so glad you're here. And I was very impressionable when I first went. I actually went for the first time because uh, a boy I was dating in college uh, asked me to go to gay days. And, um, And so I was like, oh, that's fun. And so we went to that. And then in the process of going to gay days, we ended up going into downtown Orlando off of Orange Blossom and ended up going to uh, the Parliament House. Um, Parliament House had 
so many different places to go into once you got in there. Like once you went into the courtyard, uh, you could stay outside in the courtyard around the pool and there was everybody kind of talking around and cocktailing back, back then. And by the way, it, it's an all day long affair. It doesn't matter what time you used to go to the Parliament House. Uh, you could you could show up at nine o'clock in the morning and there'd be regulars there um, and there'd be people enjoying this pool and, and all, you know, enjoying all different parts of it. Oh, by the way, the breakfast at the Parliament House was legendary. It was wonderful uh, at the Rainbow Cafe. Um, but you could go at any time during the day. And um, so I remember going for the first time uh, with this with this guy and um, he had been there before. He was a bit older than I was. And uh, we went into the Footlight Theater to see uh, the legendary. Oh, God, I, I feel so bad for people that weren't able to experience Paul Wegman, Miss P. Um, one of the most incredible performers that I had ever had the ability or the pleasure to watch perform and then later on call friend. Um, an amazing human. Uh, so talented. What time frame is this? Oh, gosh, that would have had to have been 1991, 1992. So it was before, uh, I believe, uh, Don Granitstein and Susan Unger uh, had purchased the place. Uh, I believe it was before that. I might be wrong, but I believe it was before that. Um, uh, Parliament House was first, the legend of the Parliament House is that it was owned by Michael Hodge. And uh, that uh, Michael Hodge uh, wanted to give back to the community and he wanted to turn it around and make it something from an, like you explained before, from an undesirable location to someplace that was amazing that we could feel safe in and we could call home. And God, it gave birth to so many amazing entertainers throughout the year. And I mean, a lot of people considered the Parliament House, like once you got there, like, you've made it because you've made it to the parliament house a friend of mine uh chad um uh who everyone mostly everybody knows as the the most impressive share impersonator in the world um uh chad told me that when he finally made it to the parliament house he knew that he had made it um so and i know that that's a fact because i interviewed chad michaels quite a while back it was one of the earlier interviews in the series and one of the things he said to me is that when he was booked at the Parliament House, he knew he had made it. So yeah. you're not just making this up. He actually oh, documents no. that in his own, his very own interview. Yeah. And, um, and I can relate to your time frame because the first time I experienced Parliament House, I was living in Atlanta and I was publishing a small gay magazine, a nightlife magazine in Atlanta. And I came down on a 10-day road trip um, exploring Florida's gay destinations for an article in the magazine. So we went from Daytona to Orlando to Tampa St. Pete. And wow. while we were in Orlando, excuse me? You ran the entire gamut. Right across the central part of the state. Yeah. And while we, while we were in Orlando, we stayed at the Parliament House. They hosted us there for a few days. And we got to experience it. It was in the late 80s. I think it was 89. Um, and at the time, I was driving a classic 1975 Caprice classic convertible that was triple white 
I had the top down. It was sparkling clean with the wire wheel covers reflecting the sunlight as we pulled into the parking lot. And before we could get our bags and get out of the car, there must have been 10 people down on the sidewalk near us to say, hey, welcome, blah, blah, blah. And of course, the cruising was very heavy at that time frame. Uh, balcony bingo, I think they used to call it. Yeah, it was called that and much worse. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, oh God, I don't even know if I should say this, but uh, my friends used to, uh, we used to call it the petting zoo. <laughs> <laughs> it was always fun i mean we um at that age i was still very reluctant i hadn't really come into my own um so i was always very scared to do you know growing up in the 80s um you're very aware about you know trying not to be promiscuous i guess if i'm going to be just completely honest growing up in the 80s you you were a little bit more conservative and i remember that it used to be a dare to go up to the second floor and 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 go upstairs and you know look inside the rooms and stuff like that and uh, yeah, I kind of wonder if the Parliament House intentionally put us uh, in a room. We were on the second floor, um, on a room that directly Wait, overlooked. <laughs> it directly overlooked the pool. So if we walked out our front door, we were looking right at the pool. And yeah. uh, you're right. By the time we got our bags in the room. Uh, we could already see people pressing their noses up against the glass to see what was, you know, going on. And we, yeah. we hadn't even put our bags down yet. So now I will say something when, when Don and Susan, now, obviously the part of the allure of the parliament house was that type of freedom. Um, but when Don and Susan took it over, they really went ahead and did a, an amazing job of making it a concerted effort to, taking it from being at place that had kind of that swarthy kind of um, feel to it to really making it uh, a place that you could take your mom to. And a lot of people did, um, um, you know, a lot of people later on um, uh, during the, the lifetime of the Parliament House, especially uh, towards the end of it, families would go during the day and see uh, different events at the drag show and, and things like that. Um, it became very family friendly. I know that that's not sexy to hear, but um, Don and Susan really made it, you know, something for everybody. Well, I think part of the thing too was, uh, from what I've learned about the Parliament House over the years, is that when Bill and Mike owned it prior to Don and Susan, um, mm -hmm. the the general sentiment was that it's best to stay hidden. Let's not draw too much attention to ourselves. Let's not try to lure in the general public. Let's keep it our little secret. And because of the changing times and the fact that gay bars were becoming somewhat more acceptable after the disco era, and we were starting to see an influx of more um, liberals, uh, straight people coming to them. Uh, and the fact, of course, that that Don and Susan had taken the reins, that is when it started to change. And yes, it, they did have some more family-friendly environment during the day and even at night. I, I remember, um, I think it was around 2002 or so, I was there with um, my boyfriend. We went to meet a good friend of mine from Austin, Texas, who was there with his family celebrating a family wedding in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And my friend and his boyfriend and his 
and his father and mother all wanted to go to the Parliament House that night. And we spent the night at the Parliament House um, enjoying the shows and the entertainment and the drinks and the and Well, the I will tell you, the entertainment there was legendary. I mean, um, I've traveled all around the world and I've seen entertainment locations all around the world. That golden era of the Parliament House, I think, which primarily started with Michael, but really, really came into his own with Don and Susan. Um, they, Don and Susan were all about making this place a Mecca, uh, an amazing, amazing location for all huge entertainers to want to go to. I saw and met Cindy Lauper there. I saw Belinda Carlisle. I saw Banana Rama, uh, Rick Astley, um, Pete Burns from Dead or Alive, which was a fascinating story. Um, God, so many incredible people. And then we had the hometown people as well. And then, and then of course, you know, the slew of people that ended up to becoming, um, you know, entertainers, uh, huge entertainers now through RuPaul's Drag Races, they all started through the Parliament House. So uh, Ginger Minge, uh, Detox, uh, Roxy Andrews, all of these individuals, um, you know, they're the big time for them at that point before RuPaul's Drag Races was making the stage at the Footlight Theater. Absolutely. And I remember even in later years, um, going back not too far, even, you know, shortly before they closed, anytime it was any kind of a holiday weekend, gay pride, uh, anything like that, that entire facility was packed to the gills. I mean, inside, outside, all the rooms taken, people like standing room only for a concert, poolside, no matter what was going on, it was still, you know, many years later, 30, 40 years after they opened, they were still drawing a crowd and still the talk of the town. Well, I will tell you, Parliament House was brilliant about, let's say, let's say that Pride was on a certain day, on a Saturday, uh, which uh, Orlando's come out with Pride was October 11th. Uh, so whatever day of the week that that fell during the weekend or whatever, Parliament House was the pre-party. So by the night the night before Pride, you would have the pre-party at Parliament House. Then you would have Pride, and then they would have an incredible act that night. And then they would go ahead and after you were there until you know two something in the morning, uh, the next day was the recovery party at the Parliament House. So inevitably the Parliament House kind of became like everybody's living room. You know, yeah. it's like, this is where we come to meet and see our friends and family. Yeah, so, it, it was really, it was really phenomenal. And again, you know, I'm sure there's some people out there who don't know exactly what we're talking about here. Right. Parliament House, you know, I mentioned that it was kind of like a holiday in concept to begin with before it became gay. But what What's hard to imagine for a lot of people, we in Florida take this for granted because we've seen it in Fort Lauderdale, we've seen it in St. Pete, we've seen it in Orlando, we've seen it in a number of different cities. Daytona, I think, had one at one time. It was a resort. There were 120 rooms where people could stay. So it was a genuine hotel facility. There were five or six bars distinct identities there was the the show bar that had the uh footlight players there was a, a, a huge dance bar there was a poolside bar there was a leather bar there was all kinds of activity going on there and a huge courtyard area during the day you could lay out by the pool you could go back behind the property and it was a um situated on a lake so you had 
the lake out there. You had right. sand. I I believe you had they had sand volleyball um, courts there. They had all kinds of activities. So it wasn't just a gay bar that you walked into a dark room and had a drink. This was a whole complex, and it was something that we've seen in multiple locations in Florida. But Parliament House was always the Mac Daddy, and it's the one that lasted the longest. And in fact, they'd also even had an amazing antique store uh, located in one of the rooms at the bottom. There was this fantastic antique store there. There was also at many different times, there were also different uh, rooms that converted were converted into um, store locations. Yeah, like a Trader Tom's or something that sold skimpy bathing suits and suggested exactly. t-shirts. Yeah, All kinds yeah, of great stuff. Of, in. There were a lot of uh, local artists that would, you know, lo local designers that would go ahead and, and provide them with you know, you know, custom bathing suits and things like that there. Um, uh, the other thing I was going to say was, is you mentioned a leather bar. Uh, the leather bar, uh, are you talking about the Full Moon Saloon, which was originally? Yeah. You know, the Full Moon Saloon was actually not part of the complex. It just happened to share a, um, it happened to share a uh, parking area. Uh, with, yeah, they were uh, next door uh, on Orange Blossom, weren't they? They were. They were. Actually, a fun fact about the Blue Moon Saloon is that the Blue Moon Saloon is still there today. Um, and it can't be torn down because it was the home of the first mayor of Orlando. I'm sure his family's pleased to hear that. I, I They should be. <laughs> <laughs> they so, should be. They said it was a great time. So you had this huge introduction to Orlando gay nightlife at Parliament House, and right. we're just basically floored by what it was, as you said, a gay mecca. But you've also visited a number of other gay bars in Orlando. Um, another one that suddenly became the most famous gay bar on the planet in June of 2016 um, was a small nightclub, I think she's, I think Barbara said it was only about 4,000 square feet, a small nightclub off the beaten path in Orlando that was called Pulse. Yes. What do you remember about the early days of Pulse when you first started going there? Well, here's, here's what I can say about Pulse and, uh, and Barbara and Ron uh, Legler, uh, who, who started it, um, Amazingly so. Um, I actually owe them and Don Granitstein and Dan Fraser, who's no longer with us, uh, a lot. Um, because had it not been for their support, uh, my publication, uh, my original publication, uh, would not have happened. It actually was because of them that I, um, I started uh, that business because I was actually working in advertising for myself, but not specifically for the LGBTQ market. And so uh, if it wasn't for them, I, I would not have started my business. It, it was at their urging that I did. And so I'll be forever grateful to them. Uh, the first days of Pulse, oh my gosh. It was, um, at that time, it's exactly what, I get chills right now, actually. Uh, at that time, it's, it was exactly what the gay community wanted and needed. Uh, Pulse was that beautiful amazing space that you could just go in and feel beautiful. Um, everyone, uh, 
I, I'm talking to you from Wilton Manors, where the where the outfit that everybody goes out with and is considered dressed up is, you know, uh, a pair of shorts and, you know, you're not wearing a tank top, you're wearing a T-shirt. So uh, that's dressed up in Wilton Manors. But dressed up in Orlando back in the day, especially in the days of Pulse, people would just come decked out in their best clothing and their best finery because the location demanded it. Uh, it was so beautiful. I remember for the first time walking in uh, to the White Room, uh, which was the original. It was originally uh, designed as this beautiful kind of contemporary upscale white space, uh, and everyone just looked resplendent and beautiful in that lighting. It was like literally walking into heaven. That's what it felt like. Uh, and everyone was beautiful and everyone was happy and everyone was just enjoying the most gorgeous location with the most upscale feeling that you could have had. And then right next door to it, I remember that the white, the white lounge was when you first walked in, then uh, right next door to it was the room that everyone referred to as the jewel box. And the jewel box was uh, the dancing area where there was a DJ booth right above it. And again, it wasn't a huge area, but it was luxuriously decorated. It literally looked like you were inside I Dream of Jeannie's Bottle. Everything was these <laughs> oversized, uh, beautiful, um, jewel-toned um, uh, things. And then when you went into the Adonis room, that is where you had your dancers. Um, and, uh, and that had a completely different feel to it too. And it wasn't like... Um, they had great shows in there. The boys were definitely dancing on the bars and they could do, I mean, these great acrobatics because the pipes were exposed at the top. I don't know how safe that was, but the pipes were exposed at the top and the boys could go ahead and with their rafters do all kinds of different things, um, acrobatics. Uh, thank God they were young and they could do all of that. I can't even imagine, uh, you know, uh, the kind of upper body strength that it took in order to do that. But you would go back in there and you would, it was like a Cirque du Soleil show. Uh, and so wherever you went from one room to another, it was uh, fascinating and beautiful. And you almost felt like from one room to another, you were walking into a new experience. Uh, and it was great. And everyone was welcomed. Everyone was welcomed. Um, uh, male, female, straight, gay, trans, before we even had the actual labels for it, and we didn't even know what to call ourselves, you knew you were welcomed at Pulse. Absolutely. And that's something that um, Barbara had mentioned when I interviewed her, is that it was a welcoming space for everyone. I know a lot of people associate um, Pulse with the Latino community, uh, partially because of the fact that the, um, the actual massacre there in June of 2016 happened to fall on a Latino themed night. But right. I think also part of it is because in general, uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to in the Latino community kind of felt a little bit uncomfortable in some of the quote white bars, you know, the other gay bars that were predominantly white men. Um, and they didn't kind of feel like they fit in, but at Pulse, they definitely did. Did you have that experience at all, or did you? Well, I'm a, I'm a Latino male, <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I disagree with you. Um, we were very prevalent everywhere. 
Uh, it just so happens, though, that on a Saturday night, uh, most clubs had their own niche going on. And one of the things that I can say about the Orlando gay bar community, it really, they really helped each other out. It wasn't about, I need to be the one that's the top dog every night. They really worked hand in hand with each other. So there wasn't that kind of ugly competition that sometimes you see in other cities. Um, but um, it just so happened um, that um, the, they, there, was, um, there was a desire uh, and enough people uh, that, uh, that on a Saturday night, it would merit uh, having a full night of Latin music played. And I'm sorry, there's nothing sexier than watching two men watch dance salsa. Uh, but, uh, but, but that's what, what it was. But I want to also let you know something very clearly, even though it was the quote unquote Latin night, it was enjoyed by everyone. It oh, wasn't absolutely. It wasn't exclusively a, a, a Latins only evening. Everyone was there. Everyone that loved good music to dance to, um, and have a good time in, um, everyone was welcomed again i can't stress that enough but um i know that everyone identifies it now uh with an attack on um the latino gay community of of central florida but the truth is is that it i want to rectify that it really wasn't an attack on the it just happened to be that that saturday night which was always busy and always packed was the night that this individual decided I, I, it's hard for me to think that they came specifically to injure Latin people because that's not what it was. Right. They, he, he came to injure gay people. Right. Especially and, since uh, he himself was a member of an ethnic minority. So. Oh, know, absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I don't know if your, your viewers know this or not. He was, he went there often. Um, he went there often. Um Apparently, uh, I mean, I don't want to give too much attention to this individual, but he was there often. Uh, I've heard you know, that. On, yeah, on the video cams and stuff like that, he is shown. He he was shown to be there many, many times, and knew the servers, and they all knew him too. Um, but um, but as far as Pulse was concerned, um, I was no longer living in Central Florida. I was actually living already in South Florida uh, when the incident happened, and. Um, I was there the week before visiting friends, um, and uh, I'll never forget because um, uh, my friend um, Edward Sotomayor, Top Hat Eddie, which everyone refers to him as Top Hat Eddie, um, and I were supposed to meet on the Saturday that I was there, which was the weekend before, and he said in only the way that Adina could have. He says, no, girl, I got to be there next week, so I'm not going to be there two weeks in a row. And so um, I tried to persuade him and, and his, his uh, boyfriend at the time, Luis, to come and, and see me because I wasn't going to be there the following week. I was going back home to South Florida. And he was like, no, 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 we'll see you in Wilton Manors. We'll go down and see you in Wilton Manors. And, um, and he was there uh, that night. And... Um, and so on the night of the incident, uh, the first name that was released was Eddie's. And so everyone was blowing up my phone at three o'clock in the morning because they didn't know where I was. So they were wanting me to check in. And, um, and when I finally found out what was going on, as soon as I turned on the TV, 
um, his name was the first name that was released. And so um, I finally now can talk about him without only thinking about the way that he passed. Uh, it was very hard. Uh, but um, but now I celebrate his life. And I also celebrate the fact that he was a hero. Um, because I, one of the, one of the a reasons... Lot of people, a lot of people don't realize... I live in Central Florida. I live in Tampa, which is only maybe an hour away from where Pulse was. And I heard about it here um, first thing Sunday morning when I got up. And the news spread so quickly. And the outpouring of love and support not only throughout Florida, but across the country and around the world, was an amazing event. It was a milestone in gay history because I don't think ever before had there been a gay event on any scale anywhere in the world that had that kind of instant recognition and the outpouring of support from individuals, politicians, corporations, everybody that could possibly do something was there within hours. And um, it was really an amazing event that will forever etch pulse in the memory of gay bars in, the, in Florida and across the world. But I hope that we don't do pulse and the people that loved pulse and the people that um, passed there a disservice by only remembering the, the tragic event that happened there. Pulse was a happy place. Pulse was a place that was love incarnate. Um, and I think that we do a disservice to thinking of Pulse as this place where this horrible thing happened. Yes, it occurred there, but it, um, it, was, it was so much more than that. And so I want us all to remember the wonderful, amazing experiences that we had there and um, and try to celebrate those. Uh, it's important to remember what occurred. Um, it's actually one of the reasons why I went ahead um, and started this um, new incarnation of my publication again. Um, when the similar tragic situation happened in Colorado, um, I would have had a place to talk about it or discuss it uh, used in my in my old publication. Um, I, I had the ability to, you know, I had a platform. And when when that finally occurred in um, in Colorado, I I felt like it's it's time for me to do what I can do with this little tiny platform that I have and and try to speak to people to do my little bit. Uh, to make people aware that it's not enough to say thoughts and prayers and this can't happen anymore and that can't happen anymore. No, um, it's okay for us to be sad for one day, but it's time for us to be mad now and say enough is enough and this is no longer acceptable and we won't be hunted in our own communities. That's not I agree. acceptable. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the segment with Barbara and talk about the entire history of Pulse from opening all the way through, because I wanted people to know that there was something there. It wasn't a flash in the pan. It was there for, what, 12 years, I think, 
Oh gosh, yeah. actually one of the reasons, one um, uh, Pulse also, by the way, with my first publication, Pulse was the only location uh, or business in Central Florida that for the entire span of my publication, never miss an issue. And always paid on time, by the way, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> actually, Barbara was great at that, and so was Ron. Uh, always, I mean, they got the concept of my publication really quickly, which was I didn't want to have a publication that was going to be kind of a throwaway, bar rag sort of situation. I wanted to give something that was quality that people would want to keep. And so that's why I took it from the weekly format, which everybody was used to at that point, to a monthly format. And Barbara and Ron... And also Don um, and Dan Frazier from uh, Southern Night slash Revolution, um, they got it immediately, which was like, wow, if we plan in advance and we, we kind of know what we're going to be doing, we're going to have, we're going to give, um, we're, we're going to be able to A, save on advertising dollars, number one, and number two, um, you know, help produce this publication that's going to have a lifespan that's more than just a week, and then it becomes, you know, cat litter, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, lining for cat litter. Yeah, and it's a great publication. I've seen some beautiful pictures and images in there, uh, and our, our our community has grown so much because I remember, you know, especially when you're doing research on bars that were around for a long time. If you look at the early ads, for instance, for um, Parliament House. And there, there are few and far between in the early years. But when you find an old ad for Parliament House, you're looking at something that is a poor print quality on newsprint paper that, you know, is just not pretty. There was no digital enhancement. There was no color photography. You couldn't do any of that because it would be way too expensive. Um, in fact, in those days, in the, in the 70s and 80s, if you did a print ad with spot color, with just a little bit of color in it, yeah. that was considered a luxury. You were like, ooh, you're stepping up to the plate here, dude. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, you used red. Right. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. So it, it's changed. Yeah, I, I'm old enough to know that um, I was right there at the cusp in between um, actually doing hand-done layout for, for graphics and uh, than computer, which is uh, which is all I do now. And my publication, I've got to tell you, I'd be remiss if I did not mention every, the, my publication was not my publication. My publication was the publication of uh, Orlando, really, when it first started. Uh, if it wasn't for all of the amazing, talented people, uh, photographer Christopher Reynolds, uh, photographer Julie Milford, uh, photographer Locke Robertson, um, who is also a performer uh, named uh, April Fresh, who's very popular right now. Um, also, my friends, uh, Gidget Galore, uh, who used to uh, be in the publication. Um, all, all of these wonderful people. Oh, Danielle Hunter. Uh, Danielle Hunter, who is an icon, if anybody knows anybody in the industry. Uh, an icon. These were they, the magazine belonged to all of us because it was a it was a literal love letter to the city, um, and it started getting enjoyed by people in other places that would come to Orlando and visit it. And so they would take it home, and then afterwards they would start seeing it online. And actually, uh, oddly enough, they would they would subscribe to it. And I remember actually people around the world. I would 
they would literally pay for this free magazine for me to go ahead and send it to them to England, to Brazil, to Australia, to people that would come visit uh, Central Florida for a, a myriad of reasons, whether it was Disney or whatever. Um, and, and it really was, if it wasn't for all of the wonderful, talented people in the, in the publication, uh, giving of their talents. Um, I can't take credit for all of it. All I did was put it all together and occasionally have a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, another bar that you mentioned uh, yeah. from Orlando that had an impact on your publication and that also uh, was near and dear to your heart is one that I'm familiar with. Uh, both from their Orlando location and from their uh, Tampa location, which both of which still exist, uh, Southern Nights. So why don't you yeah. talk about Southern Nights a little bit? Southern Nights. Wow. Gosh. Uh, the funny thing is, is that I, I'm going back in my own head to all of these experiences. Like um, first time at Southern Nights, I remember it was a, a college night. Uh, that I went to. And I remember that I was only in my early 20s. I might have been maybe 24, 25. Uh, and yet I felt over the hill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were so many um, really, I, it was a club that really geared itself uh, to the college crowd. And uh, at least at that point. And they had another amazing show um in the uh footlight theater i'm sorry footlight theater no um oh god what was it called before i remember that afterwards when when southern nights transformed into revolution for a while uh the theater was then redubbed the majestic um but um i don't remember what the theater was called when southern nights uh when it was Southern Nights when I first visited it. But it, uh, the hostess there was uh, Carmela uh, Marcella Garcia. Oh my. Um, and she was, um, oh my gosh, one of the funniest individuals and most talented individuals I ever again had the pleasure of seeing perform and then later become friends. Uh, um, Carmela also uh, is now passed. Uh, and I miss her so much because there were some wonderful times that we had together. But um, um, Southern Nights, <laughs> God, you, I can't do anything but just laugh and think of all the dirty things that happened there. Um, uh, it was fun. <laughs> uh, there was a there was a back um, like kind of garden area. Uh, that was really fun to go to, and there was uh, always different music playing back there, and it was a nice area to, like, chat. The dance floor was always hot. Uh, it was, again, a very small dance floor. It wasn't as big as the Parliament House, but gosh, if it wasn't hopping, I mean, it, it just, you know, it, here's the thing. Whereas the Parliament House kind of geared towards everybody, but maybe skewed a little bit older, and Pulse was that sophisticated, uh, you know, 30-something group, yet everyone was welcomed. Southern Nights was the cutting edge, what's hot, what's next. What do, what do, in three months, what are you going to see at other places? That, that's what's happening right now at Southern Nights. 
And so it was always, you always had up and coming people. I saw amazing performances there from people that later on became huge stars, but saw them first perform at Southern Nights. Um, one, a case in point, RuPaul. Uh, I had known RuPaul in Atlanta, um, uh, who used to perform at a, a club uh, called Backstreets. I think it was Backstreets. No. The, when I first uh, saw RuPaul performing in Atlanta, it was a club that was owned by the owners of Backstreet, but it was called Weekends, and it was on Peachtree Street at 10th. Um, it, it was a little, I, a little narrow, dark bar, and RuPaul used to come in there all seven feet of his, his fabulous self in go-go shorts, little Daisy Dukes, and a cut-off tank top. And dance as a boy on a like yeah. three foot, a three foot wooden cube, like a, a riser um, with handmade uh, poster board signs stapled to the telephone pole saying, hey, RuPaul's going to be performing at weekends at 2 a.m. Which he probably spent all night drawing himself and, and, and photocopying and, it. And photocopying it. Yeah. That, I mean, Ru. Ru no grass grows under Ruth's feet ever. Um, not back then and definitely not now. Um, yeah, first I first met, uh, actually, I don't know that a lot of people remember this, but um, RuPaul was actually on the first cover, my first cover of my original publication. Uh, Ru was the first interview and cover story that I did there, and I will be forever grateful uh, to him. Um, and um, uh, later on, I did like a lot of other things. Um, uh, with um, with Drag Race uh, later on, uh, but that's another story. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I saw um, I I hadn't seen Rue like in a long time uh, since I had moved down to Central Florida, and uh, and then one day, if lo and behold, she just popped out of that tiny little dressing room, and um, I remember it was hard to get from the dressing room all the way to the stage on the dance floor. And um, I remember watching the crowd part like, like Moses parting the Red Sea uh, as, as Rue was triumphantly stomping her way uh, to that platform on the stage, which I promise you was probably nothing more than plywood. <laughs> and it, was, it was literally plywood painted black. I promise you that's what it was. And... Um, and then that's when I saw him do Supermodel. Um, and we, well, he still remembered me simply because of my ex, <laughs> who was also a very, very tall man. And so, um, yeah, Rue could always spot us because he always knew where my ex was. <laughs> yeah. Rue was a fan of my ex. There, that's, that's, I, th I think that's the best way to say it. Another another one of the early interviews that I did, um, yeah. and we talked about RuPaul extensively in there, was uh, with Larry T, who is from the same time frame as we're talking about in Atlanta. I also lived in Atlanta at that time. I lived in Atlanta from 83 to 98, I believe it was. So I was there during the Ru years and during the years that he and Lahoma and Larry T piled into a minivan and scooted their butts up to New York City and set that world on fire. So, Absolutely, and, and the stole the celebrity club name, huh? And stole the celebrity club name. 
because they performed at the Celebrity Club in Atlanta, and then suddenly the little hole in the wall where they were performing in New York. I don't know that, don't know that stole is the right word. I think drag queens are inspired yes. by, by things. They're, they don't steal things. They're inspired by them. <laughs> so I know you have tons of stories to tell about yeah. tons of bars all across the Southeast and across the country. But unfortunately, we don't have an unlimited amount of time. And I do want to at least be able to delve in a little bit to your journalism background, because to me, that's a, a big part of reporting our history. You, you mentioned the first magazine that you published um, with RuPaul on the cover. And apparently, was that published in Atlanta? Was that an Atlanta magazine at the time? It actually was in Atlanta for a while. A friend of mine who actually graces the cover this week in the new publication, Jesse Lorette um, and William Treadwell um, are a married couple that Jesse uh, used to represent. Jesse and William both used to represent uh, us in Atlanta once we got the magazine going in Orlando and it spread out through the entire state. And then um, we ended up um, uh, the last, I want to say the last five years, we were also in Savannah. Uh, we were in Atlanta, we were in Las Vegas. It was funny, every single time like a different city, someone from a different city would come to Florida and they would see the publication, they would pick it up and they would go, oh, I, there's nothing like this where we're from. We'd like you to come here. And I was like, well, fine, no problem. I'm, I'm happy to send you boxes. And so that it just kept on growing. And uh, what was the name of that magazine? The name of that magazine was, it started off as What's Happening Orlando. And it was that for one year, exactly. Then we had to drop the Orlando because the next year we were in Tampa. And when we were in Tampa, then we were in Jacksonville. And then we came down to South Florida. And then all, I mean, in one year, we just exploded in a way that I had no clue that it was going to happen that way. I was happy just reporting on what was going on in Orlando. Uh, but in one year, it just blew up. And I think it was because it was different than everything else was. At least that's what everybody tells me, that they loved it because it was so different. Right. And but, um, I'm sorry, did I answer your question? I'm not no, sure. No, no, you did. That's good. Um, you know, it's kind, of, it kind of interesting in the, in the publishing world, as I mentioned, prior to, um, to this time frame, when you're talking about the 60s, the 70s, even into most of the 80s, so many of the gay publications were just, as you um, referred to them kind of bar rags. They were throwaway. People didn't want to keep them because they didn't want their coworkers, neighbors, roommates, cousins to find out that they were gay. Uh, everything was kind of hush hush and in the closet. And so the the publications kind of reflected that. And very often they ended up in the trash and um, so many archives around the world that are trying to track them down are uh, moaning and groaning because there aren't copies of them everywhere. But that was the nature of the beast. But with you, you tried to be a little bit more, um, have a little more longevity and be a little bit more of an artistic publication than just to be a bunch of uh, spot color bar ads and some gossip about, you know, what drag queen left her car in the crystal parking lot overnight or something. Right. My, uh, my vision uh, from the beginning was to be a local magazine that had a national flavor to it. Um, honestly, I know this is presumptuous, but I looked at magazines like Playboy and Esquire, and I was like, 
I want to have great articles in there about what's going on right now that anybody could pick up anywhere and be connected to. You know, I want to, we, we, we also had like uh, short stories. Uh, we had a wonderful writer named uh, Kiernan, Kiernan Kelly. Um, and they went ahead and provided us with these wonderful stories uh, that people would read episodically every month. Uh, there'd be a new chapter that would come into it. And then there would be photography uh, essays that would be, you know, four or five pages long, uh, where I would let, um, you know, people run nuts with their concepts on a different uh, theme. Um, so, so the photography for the magazine was always fresh, was never canned. Uh, we were the first publication that ever put, um, on a regular basis, put uh, drag queens, trans people, and lesbians, because they they weren't being spoken to. And I wanted to speak to everybody in the community. I wanted, I wanted everybody. In fact, we had all, all races, all ages, uh, everybody was reflected in there. Michael Wanzi was huge and instrumental in writing an amazing article every, every month for, for the magazine that spoke to uh, an older theater audience. And just, um, it, was, it was a nice mix. It represented everybody. It was a nice mix. And um, it was a fun read. And uh, gratefully, uh, a lot of people collected it, which was never my expectation. Like, I never thought people would keep it. Uh, in fact, sometimes it shows up on eBay, which astounds me, uh, uh, where people are selling their collection of, of, of the magazine. Um, and also the posters. We used to do these special posters for gay days. And the idea behind those posters was is that I want the original idea was behind that we would make these amazing images and people would put them up on their doors at the host hotel so that everybody would know what the gay rooms were. Well, they became extremely collectible and people would no longer just want one, they'd take four or five. And um and they've become extremely collectible too. Um the first one is actually very near and dear to my heart because the idea behind it was to take all the celebrities celebrity, local celebrities in Orlando and uh, dress them up as Disney characters. And in fact, some of the costumes that they have on are the actual Disney costumes <laughs> uh, because these people were actually the characters uh, at Disney. And uh, that poster uh, took, that poster took four, 40 plus hours to shoot, uh, to shoot every person in that poster. And it included people that are now legends. I mean, Sam Singhouse, uh, Doug Bowser, um, um, uh, Dame Edna, who now is in New York, uh, doing uh, some amazing shows on Broadway. Uh, his name is Michael Walters. He's the official Dame Edna. I mean, uh, just uh, Baby Blue, when Baby Blue first started. Um, I remember she's Alice in Wonderland on that one. Uh, I mean, just uh, Darcel Stevens. Just so many wonderful people. And um, uh, I, I one time I had everybody, when everyone was still with us, I actually had everyone sign right next to their their image on that poster. And it's here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and when I find it, I'm going to, um, I'm going to frame it and then uh, auction it off uh, for a charity. Very cool. So how long were you doing this magazine, this print magazine? Oh, it went from two. Oh, uh, it went from two thousand and I want. 
ooh, I want to say 2006, 2006 to 2016. So 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, 10 years. I won't answer any more questions unless you ask me one. Go ahead. <laughs> now, I know that you mentioned uh, briefly a little while ago that you were kind of um, inspired by the uh, Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs to kind of reinvent your magazine concept. The new magazine, as I understand it, and I've seen several issues online, is it a completely digital magazine? It's completely digital. I did, um, I did not want to come back into print um, simply because I wanted to speak to a larger audience. Um, it was, it, and, and also it's, print is no longer how we as a community or as a world really communicate anymore. And so it just didn't make sense to print it. Now I do have it on a site where if you absolutely need a printed copy of it, the magazine is completely laid out in a high res format. So if you want to print it out and you want to have a one of a kind piece of the magazine, you can print it out every month and they will send it to you. Uh, but I just don't think it's, um, I, don't, I don't think it's an effective way anymore of, um, of communicating. Well, I agree and, with you. I agree with you. And you could easily, you know, revive your poster concept and come up with a monthly or quarterly poster that had a cool graphic photo you know photographic image or graphic image with the with the um, web link on it and people could go see the magazine but that poster could stay up for 10 years and it would still be valid as opposed to a magazine which you know you have to print every month or every week and then find a way to distribute them and recollect them if they don't get picked up and it's it's a lot of headache i've been well, there i just i just i mean the main point honestly was and nothing against listen i love paper <laughs> i love i i you know there's something about opening up a magazine and having that wonderful smell of ink and the feel of paper i paper and ink is in my blood so no dissing to any of the publications that are out there that still print i just personally had done it already i did it extremely well and um and it was time to move on to like bigger better things so um another thing that i really enjoy right now which i had no way of being able to have any kind of concept of before was um you know when you have a print publication like you had you put it out there you 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 know you print twenty five thousand or fifty thousand however many however many you're printing and then when when someone would say well how do i know this is working for me or how do i know this is being read the only thing i could say was i don't know they're all gone i don't have to pick up anything when i go take the new one in you know or or there's very few left over you know so i know it's out there and i know people are keeping it and i go to my friends houses and strangers houses as well as for parties or invitations or things like that and they're there uh so i know that but now the fun part is is that and this is honestly the best part uh I can now go on to the analytics of the publication and find out when it was opened up, how it was opened up, what pages they went to, when they stayed there the longest, what countries it's being opened up with. That is staggering. Um, um, I mean, it's fascinating. And I find that now so cool because I get to, um, you know, where I'm now communicating on a completely different level. and I, and I it's, it makes the world feel 
bigger and smaller at the same time. Um, because yes, now we're communicating all around the world with my publication, but at the same time, which is bigger, obviously. Um, but at the same time, now I feel so much more connected to everybody. So what is the goal with the, the new magazine is called Happening. No yes, what? I dropped, the, I dropped the what's because for years, um, for years, people would just say happening. And um, so I was like, you know, why, why make it? Um, actually, I wasn't the one that named it originally. Uh, the one that named it originally was Don Granitstein. Uh, oh. We were we were all at a meeting, and we had been belaboring the name. I mean, it was painful. And um, and at one point, Don Granitstein said, "You know, at the end of the day, the magazine just needs to say what's happening." And so I was so exhausted at that point. I really was so exhausted. I was like, being an advertising and marketing person, I was like, I don't care if it's called paper. Well, actually, there is a magazine called paper. But I, I mean, I, I don't care what it's called at this point. You want to call it what's happening? It's what's happening. And so that's what it became. And that's, I'm telling you the exact, like, history of how it became what's happening. It was Don Granstein just saying, the magazine just needs to say what's happening. And I was like, fine, that's what we're going to call it. What's happening? That's it. So the, and, uh, the new digital magazine happening, yes. what is the editorial focus of that? Are you, is it similar to what What's Happening was, or have you kind of tweaked it and changed it to fit the 21st century? I've tweaked it, well, I believe. I want to tweak it and change it in the areas that uh, I wanted to expand on. Um, obviously, now, I'm, now we're, I'm speaking to a global audience now. Um, so I still wanted to have that feeling of um of um of a magazine that you can pick up and know what's going on in the different areas uh right now the majority of the areas that are advertising are the big uh cities so i've got new york um chicago las vegas a lot of the big big um you know la uh and the different places here in um in florida um but also the articles are speaking on a universal level. So anybody can pick it up anywhere. Uh, and, um, and it talks about everything. I mean, we're talking about everything really. And as far as my publisher's note, here's the other area where I will tell you that it's evolved a lot. Uh, I always wrote the publisher's note, uh, but the publisher's note for me was always a dreadful thing that I had to write. Because I was like, oh, God, what do I talk about now this month? You know, and I would always kind of focus on the theme. And that was that. Uh, well, now uh, I've had I've had so many experiences that I can kind of feed back to that. Now I'm I'm talking about the theme, but I'm also putting a lot of my personal um, experiences in there. And it's connecting with a lot of people. Um, I find that people are saying, wow, I've never heard someone, I've, we've all felt that, but I've never heard someone say it like that. And I'm glad that you said it because now we can talk about it. And so, yeah, I'm bleeding all over the publisher's page this, these, these days, uh, <laughs> but it's worth it. It's worth it. I'm talking about things that, that really, I think, that, you know, with the magazine, I've always tried to do things that interest me. And if it interests me, then I think it'll interest the community at large. But, I, you know, it's got to entertain me. <laughs> if it doesn't entertain me, you know. 
and I get questions like like this month we um we did this feature on um uh male fashion dolls, which as you can tell, I work in that industry as well. Um and they said, you know, why do you have articles about uh fashion dolls? And I said, Well, I don't know if you know this, but men are the ones that mostly collect fashion dolls now. Um, you know, there's some women, but a lot of it is men. Um, and uh, it's my magazine and I can write whatever I want to. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it's 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 another passion of mine. And so I know that a lot of other people like it and see it as an art form. And so I include that as well. But I talk about all different kinds of things. We've got um, uh, Robbins Wright in this one now, who's a kind of like a, the male Carrie Bradshaw for us, I guess. Um, just a lot of fun things, a lot of fun interviews. We did an interview with Glenn Hansen, uh, Varla Jean Merman, who was, who graced the premiere issue. Uh, Jeffrey Roberson is a great friend and I adore him and he does so much for the community and he did me the grand favor of gracing my cover. Um, I can't stress enough how grateful I am to all the people that always seem to show up for me. And we can't express enough how much we appreciate what you're doing, what you've done in the past uh, with the gay publications and what you're doing now with the new digital publication. And I especially appreciate you taking this time to talk about a few of the bars in Orlando from your gay past. We will definitely have to have you back on again to kind of finish some more. I know we could probably do about eight or 10 episodes with you and never cover all the bars <laughs> you want to talk about, but um, you know, we've got to give somebody. Yeah, a next time, next time I'll, next time I'll try to drop a little more, uh, a little tea? more tea. Yeah. I'll try to drop a lot. You're going to have to, you know, um, Oh God, what's this wonderful show? Hey girl. Uh, I think it's called Hey girl or yeah. uh, no. Hey queen. Hey queen, queen. with um, Johnny. With, uh, with Johnny McGovern. McGovern. Uh, he does this thing at the end of the show where he puts up pictures and and says, uh, look at her. And uh, actually a friend of mine, uh, Joey, Joey Kilmeyer, a uh, wonderful makeup artist, uh, made me a t-shirt at one point because I used to say, look at her all the time. And so he made me a great t-shirt. Um, uh, and uh, maybe that's what we can do. You can show me pictures of different people and I'll tell you, I'll tell you my experience with them <laughs> or I won't. And then you'll just see a look on my face and then that'll say it all because my Well, we did, we did actually interview Johnny McGovern in an early segment as well. Uh, there is an interview segment with him. So we've done, you are now, uh, for the record, you are now interview number 114. So, wow. so there's well number. over a hundred hours of video interviews with people talking about their gay history some of them celebrities, some of them performers, some of them bar owners. Uh, we have a couple coming up in the near future. Um, tomorrow, I will be interviewing um, Don Granitstein about the Parliament House and his ownership there. Um, the next day, I will be interviewing um, Daniel Nardiccio about his new bar in uh, Hell's Kitchen, which is called Red Eye New York. Mm -hmm. And um, we've already interviewed him in the past about eight months ago, 
about his underwear party on Fire Island and some of the other fun stuff he does. So we we try to kind of cover all the bases and talk to as many people as we can. But we appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I look forward to actually getting this out to the public. Before we let you go, one thing, where do people go to find Happening Magazine online? Okay, you go to www.happdig mag.com hap dig mag very cool and we'll put a, a slide with that on the end of the of the video but i hope everybody enjoyed the interview and we look forward to having you back thank you so much frank i really enjoyed it it was so much fun thank you for having me and i can't wait for part two that concludes another episode of the gay archive show for more information about this episode or to find more episodes visit gaybarchives.com.